Greetings and welcome to Wizard in the Wild podcast. Today's episode is a bit different and special because Emily takes the stand. Emily, I remember when we first met and you were super excited because you were launching your podcast the week after. Mm. And I can't help but remember listening to the first episode and you asked the all-time existential question, who am I? And I don't think you uh, you kind of gave it justice. Your answer did not give it justice. <laughs> and I'm not going to try to introduce who you are either because I think you're many things. Before we get into that, I think that like we as a culture, we've turned forever into the into the only acceptable definition of success. So like mm-hmm. if you have a hobby and you pick it up and you and you have so much fun with it and then you don't want to do it anymore, mm-hmm. it's a pity, you know, or or like what a shame that you're not doing that anymore. Or if you if you write a few books and and you decide you don't want to write anymore, you're a failed writer. If you mm. if you get married and it ends in a divorce, it's a failed marriage. Or if it's a friendship, and you know you've been you've been friends for so many years, and you're super close, and then it just doesn't you you kind of drift. It's like you were never real friends. Mm. So I think it's like the only acceptable win condition is that it happens forever, right? And I think you are a living example of change, honoring the, the past versions of yourself. And, and yesterday we were having a conversation about this and it kind of tied really well into your three books, Inhale, Exhale and Waves, mm. three volumes of profound and really heartfelt poems that are so, I think they touch you because you know, they are words from the heart. They always say words from the heart touch the heart. So mm. it's super relational. Some of them are mysterious and I love it because it, it keeps it open-ended and, and it can, it's universal at the end of the day. And your first two volumes take us on a journey through heartbreak. So this is the blurb, heartbreak, loss, love, and renewal so that we may feel a little less alone. Whilst your third volume, Waves, which is my favorite and the one that I started reading yesterday, <laughs> is a powerful tribute to the inner strength we all have within us. So could you walk us through this journey, your evolutionary journey, where you've learned to cultivate confidence and love and compassion mm-hmm. and self-love? Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, I'll start by saying thank you. Thank you for offering to do this. <laughs> It's uh, much more intimidating than I thought it would be. (laughs) Being on the other side of the mic. And in person. And in person. And in person. I just wanted to touch on a few things that you said before I I dive in. The first is it's very funny because when you referenced the first episode, Greetings, where I introduced myself, what's so funny is that a lot of people pointed out that I don't say in it that I'm a barrister. Mm. And you know, why was that? And it was a complete slip of the tongue. I was going to say it, but I think it's, it it ties into your question because it's how do you reconcile all those different parts of yourself? Mm. So that the beginning of the blurb of inhale and exhale on the back of each book says in a, in a modern world built on filters, swiping and liking what space remains for emotion. And then in ways you reference emotion as emotion being energy in motion. Mm. And I love that. Even you can tell by the blurb when I wrote inhale and exhale or what came out of it was really it was I didn't feel that there was space for emotion. Everything 
especially I was in London, I was in my early 20s, it, it really was a culture of swiping and liking. I mean, even now, Instagram, we speak about it like, oh, social media, the bad side, but genuinely, like, people have forgotten how to have real conversations. Mm -hmm. The number of people that I meet, it's actually heartbreaking. I mean, I remember someone saying something to me, and I, I probably do also, I'm aware that I maybe connect deeper, faster than most people. Like, I kind of don't have patience for the superficial bullshit yeah I just yeah. I like to dive right in but someone said to me that she'd never had those kind of conversations with any of her close girlfriends Oof. and she's in her 30s and it was heartbreaking honestly because it was there's a lot of acquaintances not enough for your friends so many so many and I do you know what I just remembered was what you were what you were saying about things ending yeah and how it's viewed in the modern world as failure mm. and it's something I actually referenced I think on the podcast I can't remember this week or the week before someone who told me they viewed relationship ending as failure and our culture is the only one that views death as success you're together and one of you dies that's a successful relationship mm. and that's crazy mm. I mean it's beautiful of course like if you spend your life together amazing but there are so many other iterations of relationships that have beauty as well. And I think I couldn't help but remember also something that you told me a few days ago. It was like a Kabbalah thing. Mm. The solution is created oh, yeah, the, before the problem. The solution is created before the problem. Yeah, and if you take that like mindset towards relationships, you can be sad that they end. That's valid. But it's not a failure because you you grow as a person and you, mm. you become you change in so many ways. If you don't change at the end of a relationship, then what was it, you know? Well, and you know, my greatest growth and transformation has always come at the end of a relationship. Mm. So the end of, you know, one relationship is what led to the books. Mm. The end of another is what inspired me to sign up for my yoga teacher training. Because the truth is, whilst I was, I maybe wouldn't have had the impetus to do something like that before. Or I have a friend who's just gone through a breakup recently and he's signed himself up for like this amazing cookery course and to go racetrack driving. And there are things that we can do anyway. You, you just know. wouldn't dare do it. If but you yeah, know. we forget to kind of, I think it wakes you up. I think a breakup or, well, I think for everyone they're different. For me, they tend to be like as in different events for some people it's I mean god forbid but it could be an illness or it could be death or it could be any form mm -hmm. of shake-up for me it tends to be through breakups that I start in you yeah I have this moment of okay it's time to and it's not change or run away in the sense of escaping it but it's kind of I definitely I think have an ingrained viewpoint of turning things into something better mm -hmm. and not letting that emotion go to waste so for example coming back to the books Inhale, I mean, Inhale in a way is the most uncomfortable book to read because it is very sad, it's very raw. And at the same time, it's probably the one that would resonate the most with everyone because I think everyone has felt that way at some point. And although the poems themselves reference, or when I wrote them, referenced certain situations or certain people even, I found myself remembering them in subsequent situations in subsequent years. Mm. And they have still as much impact. And in a way, they now heal me. And there was a period of time when I was a bit embarrassed or ashamed of what I'd written because, because it was uncomfortable. And it was uncomfortable to, to, you know, 
again, filter swiping and liking what's based There's on no filters. emotions. There's, yeah, there was no filter. It's raw. It's raw. I don't even really like to call it poetry. I mean, it is, but it's emotion. Mm. It is just emotion. And it's stuff that I felt so deeply. And now I look back at it and I'm so grateful for it. And If you could go mm. back to, I don't know, maybe you were in your 20s when you were in here. Mm. If you could go back to the Emily in her 20s when she was going through that journey of like heartbreaks and mm. what would you tell her in hindsight? Because I know that you wouldn't change anything. You wouldn't, it's not like you would hold back or you would write differently or, but what would you tell yourself? You know, I don't know if I could tell myself anything. Mm -hmm. First of all, I wouldn't have wanted to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was extremely stubborn. <laughs> Still am, although less so. But the thing is, is that I never intended to write. Yeah. That's something as well. It's like, you know, some people probably think, oh, you wrote a book. But I never consciously sat down and said, I'm going to write a book today. I mean, the way it started happening is I, I literally felt this wave of grief that I was experiencing. And it all ties in because actually for anyone who heard the episode with my lawyer friend and the story of Bumble Boy, that's when I started writing. I'd written a few things before. I'd written when I was a kid, but I, it wasn't like a stream pouring out of me. But something about that relationship or, again, the solution before the problem, me saying to my lawyer friend, sign up to Bumble, her signing up to discover <laughs> that my pseudo boyfriend if you can even call him that had, had matched with her that's a wild story crazy crazy but that was the solution before the problem so in a way i was showing myself that i need to get out of it and that provoked this stream of emotion and i remember it clearly i remember i was lying on my bed and yeah i was crying i have no shame admitting it i was really deeply upset mm -hmm. and i just had the first like two lines or three lines come to me and it was I think I can still remember it to this day, even though I wrote it years and years ago. It was like, as the sadness seeps through me and the days go by, the pain washes over the sting of goodbye. And I remember it came to me with that rhythm, sting of goodbye. Mm -hmm. You left me here standing my back to a wall, almost feels like we never happened at all. And though the tears dry as I lay in my bed, I can't help but wonder if you meant what you said. Oh Were we real? Was it true? You said you would stay. Did you feel the same too? Or did you fill with dismay and run at the sight of seeing me here? Open vulnerable Christ, honest, sincere. Is this what happens when I open my heart? I can't remember the end of it. All of that just came out of me because it's still, you know, that is how basically, but so connected to the feeling. That's how, but that's how I wrote it. It, it wasn't that I had to write. It would just come out and it comes out in like 30 but seconds. But it comes out in your writing, definitely. When, yeah. I, when I read a few of the poems, I... It doesn't come off as planned at all. It's, it's, it's not, and I never edit. Why am I saying that? So it was just, it was emotion that needed to be expressed. And then I would feel better after writing it. Mm. And I'm trying to remember how that poem ends, but it was something like, I loved the line, it was something like, um, I would move on, but for now time was standing still. Mm. And it was very much this feeling of like, although I had these waves of emotion kind of going up and down through me, I felt like I was a bit stuck. And the, the writing or writing it down was a way for me to start moving forwards. That was my next question. Mm. So a lot of us tend to stay in our heads. And, and you know, when you, when, you, when you think about something for too long, it grows. Mm. But when you speak to someone that you feel safe and comfortable with, kind of the, you know, the emotion or the idea or whatever kind of dissipates, doesn't mm. exist. And then you realize it was never a problem. You just made it, your mind made it a problem. How, how do you have the courage, right? How do you have the courage after all, all these experiences, not only to move on and to open up your heart, 
but also write about it and be so <laughs> vulnerable with the world, like not just your family and friends with the world. And I think it's a it's a beautiful gift to everyone because it truly is healing. Like I remember opening the first page to waves and I loved I loved what it said. Maybe I maybe I'll read it out for people because I think I remember. I call yeah, do you want to read it? Go for it. Yeah. To all those who are departed and to those who are yet to arrive to the friends who bring joy and the lovers lying side by side, to the parents who do their best and to the children who learn and grow, to those who play and rest and to those my soul does know, to the feeling of elation and to hope and peace and love, to a feeling of serenity and of union with God above. It's universal. I think it's timeless. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's so funny because I was different then. I mean, we're always changing. Mm. And in a way, I used to be so scared of change. And I've learned to embrace change as my most powerful force in my life. Again, I think we all come with different gifts. I think my voice is one of my gifts. I mean, it's funny, my career as a barrister is speaking. Mm. You know, my sister, part of her disability, she can't speak. So she uses sign language. So I find it, you know, that's another, and I always find it interesting that she literally struggles to form words, also be understood verbally. And I use my voice in so many ways. So I'm conscious that that is a gift and I don't want to waste that either. Mm -hmm. And my gift, my voice can be through my words. It could be then through the podcast. It has many different forms of expression. It could even be through teaching a class, you know? Yeah. And change, change goes with the different forms of expression. And when you were saying, how did I have the courage? The honest answer is I didn't have the courage. I really didn't. Mm. It had to come out. It was out kind of, of like too late ads published. <laughs> I didn't publish it for years, actually. Oh. I first wrote it and it, I wrote, 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 and it was just streaming out. I mean, the first, I literally had that first poem that I told you. Mm. And then I had this other poem that was like, Fool for You. And do you know what I remember this poem and why it's called Fool for You? Is because Zane, Zane Malik, has a song called Fool for You. Yeah. I'm a fool for <laughs> you. Something like that. And it was playing. And as it was playing, like the background of that song, Again, it was the same kind of way that the words came to me. And you'll also notice the first book is much more rhythmic than some of the others. Yeah. It has a very strong rhythm to it. Anyway, so I start writing one or two poems. And I was in therapy. And I remember my therapist was the first person I showed. And I remember showing her one or two. And I was so ashamed. Mm. So ashamed. And her response was crucial, actually. Wait, how what did she say? I'm interested to know. She said that it was beautiful and that I had a gift. And she was like, you know, your, your ability to express yourself in that way and to distill the emotion. Is, is really something that you should consider sharing. So I then put it on a blog and I put it under a fake name. I think I called myself Chloe Flowers. <laughs> like, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and the thing is, is that there was a part of me, like a lower part of me wanted to like copyright it. So I copyrighted it, but to this like fake Chloe Your Flowers person. part of you wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> and I started showing friends and then I had the manuscript mm. and I'd made it and it was actually originally called Cheese and Potatoes <laughs> for reasons that don't really matter, but there was a point to it. So it was called Cheese and Potatoes and I half-heartedly sent it off to a couple of publishers, but deep down I didn't want it to be published. I didn't really. Mm. And so nothing came of it. It wasn't until the lockdown, which was maybe two years after I started writing, but I literally woke up one morning and it was like, I have to publish the books. Mm. It was just like this urge that I had to do it. And in three weeks they were out. I called up one of my best friends that day, who's a graphic designer, and I said, listen, I want to publish the books. Can you do the covers? We came to an agreement. She did the covers, the illustrations, and we worked like madmen for three weeks. 
and literally three weeks and it was out. And once it was out, I had the biggest vulnerability hangover. I was so afraid of being seen. I was so afraid of having included very personal content. I was afraid of my parents judging it. I was afraid of everyone, of my colleagues. And then I thought, fuck, why am I so afraid? Like, this is so exhausting. But I also only released it, as in published it, when I was over the emotion. Mm. Like, I wouldn't necessarily publish something that had just happened because at that point, the emotion still belongs to me and is very raw. But in a way, me publishing it, although it's counterintuitive, yes, it's a, you're giving it, but it is actually giving it. You know, mm. it's, it no longer belongs to me. So I have compassion for the Emily who had those experiences, but I no longer identify with them. Mm. Okay, two things. Mm. What were the responses that you got from your closest friends and family? Mm. <laughs> How honest do I want to be? <laughs> and for sure, that you, you probably had the mixed emotions. The, let's just put it this way. The people the closest to me were the least supportive. Because I think they felt threatened by it in a way, or they felt that, um, in a way, it was very selfish, which is part of my issue with a bunch of these people anyway, which is, oh, but what, how will we look? No one cares. Yeah. This isn't about you. This isn't even about me. Yeah. This is, this is human emotion. And can you appreciate the effort of this endeavor and, and support it? Yeah. Someone who was really supportive unexpectedly was my grandfather, actually. Mm-hmm because he was so quiet in many ways. He was by no, like he wasn't a quiet man, but he, he, you know, I don't think female poetry about emotion and sexuality and heartbreak is really, <laughs> it's like a cup of tea. But I remember the, the year that I published them, I published them in April, April, May. And I'm my birthday's in August. And that year for my birthday, he offered me poetry books and You know what, it was the most, I think it was to this day, the, the most touching birthday gift I've ever received. It was so, and he'd gone and researched the books he thought I would like, and he got me no. like, yeah, the complete collection of Maya Angelou. So it was even, it was like on brand kind of to the, yeah. That's so thoughtful. Mm. And you know what made it all worth it? Like for the books generally, is I remember like people that I didn't really know who left reviews or who reached out to me. And, and yeah, and that actually sites. made a difference. Yeah. And even if it's just one person. Yeah. Saying, it I ripples, seen, it, yeah, ripples, it ripples out. I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah, so that was actually leading me to my next question. That, you know, where you said you were you were scared at the beginning and you stayed a really long time. There was a really long period between mm. when you decided to publish and when you finished writing them. You said you, you overcame that fear when you knew that you didn't identify with these emotions anymore. Mm. You validated them, you... You felt them, you let them, you let them go through you and you, you know, you let go. And I think a lot of people, especially when it comes to writing, and I could say that for myself, there's a lot of fear around writing down how you feel. For me, it comes from the, the transient nature of my emotions, because I know that for a minute I'll feel like this, but then the next minute I won't feel like that anymore. So it's, it's again, tying back to this, this the how we started the episode that it's if you say that you're something you have to be it forever that is a challenge i faced with the books mm. which was people would read them people make the mistake of understanding you or knowing you mm. and it's like no you're you you have, know this ver you know this version of me yeah or this one experience but even then 
you only know it through the prism of how it's making you feel, mm. which is because of something you've experienced. Or even if it's not a situation you've been through, your judgment of it and your reaction to it is still about you. And so you're forgetting that actually anything that you're feeling about it is really a mirror to you. Mm. Because how you, it, because it's an intersubjective understanding, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had a bit of fear around prophesizing things. Like mm. I felt like sometimes I would write poems and then, then they'd come true. Really? Manifestation, one one. Well, yeah. And so I was like, you know, again, problem or solution, which is <laughs> chicken or egg. I think that for me, let's face it, it only really applies with uncomfortable emotion. When it's something really joyful, you have no problem writing it down. True. If it's something uncomfortable, for me, I, I will try and write it down. Unless it's something really like that you just need to get out of your system. Mm. Send yourself a voice note and delete it. Send yourself a text and then delete it. Mm. But otherwise, write it down, but without giving it a judgment of good or bad. Just this was emotion. Because it's also sometimes helpful. Like, let's say that you're in a situation and you feel just for whatever reason, something feels really off. And you write about it. Now, it's, it is possible that it's all in your mind. You're giving too much attention to something that doesn't warrant it. And you don't want to feed that negative voice in your head. Yeah. But maybe there is, maybe it's a situation where there is some validity to it. And so having that record, if it happens again in a few months, you can look back and see if there's a pattern. And if there's a pattern, where does it come from? Yeah, I think it's so important to, uh, like you said, uh, observe without judgment the feeling. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, like if you look back when you were a child and you'd be, you're like having a tantrum or you're you're feeling things that you don't understand you know like inst the maternal instinct which was to just give you love right and compassion mm -hmm. and and i think a lot of the time when we have like those uncomfortable emotions we're so ashamed that we feel them or we think that it's petty to feel a certain way or or that i shouldn't i shouldn't say this out loud i shouldn't why am i even feeling like this but it, but mm -hmm. but instead if if we take those circumstances and and start from a place of compassion and love, then we can actually channel those uncomfortable feelings into something. Well, that's very perceptive. And I mean, maybe I was also writing because I wasn't comfortable. Now I'm much more in touch with my emotions, but at the time I wasn't comfortable feeling them. Mm. And I was actually a very good quote unquote child. Mm. I felt I was very primed to behave. Mm. I was very primed to be an emotional caretaker of the people around me. Mm. And I remember always being told, you know, to be good, be good, be good. And so I never wanted to kind of rock the boat. You didn't really let yourself feel. As yeah, child. yeah. And then my siblings required much more attention. So one of my siblings was just, as a child, much more volatile. And so it was kind of the quote-unquote, I don't want to say bad child, but like, you know, badly or mm. not as well behaved. And so they kind of took that mantle. And then, of course, there was my sister who was disabled yeah. And so she required so much care and attention that then there was a there was just there was no space there was no space there was no time. Mm -hmm. And so really for me it was also just a process of learning learning to own the emotion like allowing myself to feel that way. And allowing ourselves to feel everything. Like it's funny I was I met a guy at a dinner recently and he was telling me how he's been trying to to explain to his son that when his son's upset he can't shout, but he can cry. Mm. Because when he was growing up, he was always told that he couldn't cry. And I said, you're doing the exact same thing to your child. It's you're like just, this dichotomy. Yeah, but you're replacing one emotion with the other. Yeah. Now you say it's okay to cry, but why is it not okay to, to be angry? The, the kid's seven. 
I mean, I'm not a child psychologist, so you'll know much better than me, but yeah. I was like, anger is a very valid human emotion. Mm. And if a child needs to express its anger, as long as it's doing it in a safe way and not attacking someone or, you know, whatever, scream. Yeah. But but then I have a, I have a it's a bit of a, a dilemma. You're really good at expressing yourself through writing. Yeah. Some people, they can't put what they're feeling into words, mm. whether it's oral or in written. Mm. What advice would you give to to those people? Because they're in the same boat. They still they 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 haven't um, fully felt their emotions because the circumstance mm. might have prevented that mm. from happening. So how would you move forward from there? You know, I think that's the the amazing thing about music. For me, it's music. Some people will tell you art or paintings. For me, it's music. You know, we all relate to songs or things that we hear because they put into words what we can't. And reading. And reading. That's why a lot of your poetry is, it touches people because it's they, they totally relate. It's like they put into words what they are feeling. Thank you. And it's so funny because I'm so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> this conversation. Like, ah. <laughs> you know, this, it's, it's funny. I'll put the, the poetry out there, mm. but I'll still feel shy around exploring, you know? Really? Mm. You don't know the power of it then. <laughs> I think you downplay the power of it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, like, funnily enough, I think that's also a cultural thing because in a way, I mean, I could make a big statement and be like, women were never meant to be seen and heard. I don't think that really applies to me. I think I'm very, very <laughs> seen and very heard. But it's true that, you know, there is something around, I'm clearly an extrovert. I've mm. always loved people. I've always loved performing. So as a kid, I used to love musical theatre. And I remember always being told, like it was ingrained, like, don't be a show off, don't be a show off. And it's like this very British thing, like, don't be a show off. Whereas my dad, in his Frenchness, was much more like, Embrace you want to sing? Yeah, sing, do a sing, be on stage. Like, much more in a way nurturing of it. And no one did anything good or bad, but it, it was just different cultures. Mm. And so I think there's also this... You know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's so amazing, like the British side, oh, you do all these amazing things, but also don't draw too much attention to yourself. Don't go to, and that's definitely my family, like don't go too far outside the, outside the lines. Like, mm. you know, why do you have to be so disruptive kind of thing? And the irony being, I'm not really that disruptive, mm. but it's true that I probably then do downplay the power of whatever it is that I do. And maybe also to myself, because I think there's maybe also a, I don't know, this is me being very honest, but if you then if you if you admit to yourself that something has power, then you also have to nurture it properly. Because mm. it's almost like I don't want to say a duty, but you don't want to waste it. Whereas I find it much more easy to do all these things because I approach them as a kind of as an exploration and as a play. But to do that, I can't really acknowledge mm. the depth of it. Yeah. <laughs> you're so red <laughs> you know that's also my that's my only telltale sign when i was at bar school they would record us doing advocacy so you would literally have to stand up in front of your peers and they would you know get a camera and you'd have to watch yourself back yeah and it was so that you wouldn't stutter or you wouldn't do whatever and i had two things i never stuttered i never really played with my hands or did things like this but i would go bright red and I would speak way too fast. <laughs> no, you're speaking perfect. Oh, thank you. But I'm still going red. 
Because you can't maybe because you're, you're maybe because there's the... no AC. Maybe that's why. I'll blame it on the AC. <laughs> so my next question is: so we talked we talked about this actually. This idea that if you have a problem with someone and you don't address it, mm-hmm. it's just going to show up in another face. Mm. It's some. It, it has nothing to do with this other person. It's it's about how you deal with the situation. I'm saying this because going back to the poems and you know the different relationships that you've been through. What's something that you've learned or you've taken out of, out of all these experiences, that kind of empowered you to break the cycle? You know, I could give you a superficial level response, which is that you learn to like identify what doesn't doesn't work for you you learn to have more self-worth you know you make better decisions essentially but the truth of it is i think they all taught me how to love mm. but not everyone can do like it's crazy how you see that like but because loving is not a is not a we were saying yesterday loving is is a state of being it's not something that you go look out for it's not something it's that you just do is. it's just something that you are mm. And so, you know, even in, I don't know if the people I was with loved me back, mm-hmm. but I did love them. And maybe I loved them differently to the way I love now. And maybe, you know, someone who's older might hear this and be like, it wasn't real love. But it, it felt like love at the time. It's how you knew to It's to how love I knew them. to love at the time. Mm-hmm. And Jenna Zoe, at Jenna Zoe on Instagram said something beautiful about when a heart breaks. A heartbreak? is obviously excruciating, but the heart breaks and so is open. And what's more beautiful than living with an open heart? That's why I've never regretted anything. Like, again, I think if you don't, if you don't open your heart, you're not living, right? It's like you're automated, you're a zombie. Yeah, I mean, the way that I live my life, and I I acknowledge that that might be very different to other people, but I don't want to have any regrets. And for the most part, I really don't because for me, having no regrets is giving my everything. It's giving the best of myself as, to the extent that I can at any given time. It's loving to the fullest of my ability. It's it's just going for it. And yes, sometimes that might not, but that's my personality. That's what works for me. And sometimes it might take me to the wrong road or the you know a dead end. Like one of the poems in the books is like, <laughs> like it was like trying to go down a dead end road, but. I needed that to then redirect or to course correct. And mm. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about what I value in life. And just, you know, one of my friends always says to me, oh, you're so brave. She's like, you, you have such bravery to keep loving and to keep trying again. Mm. But like, for me, it's like breathing. Like what would be life without love? And that's, it's also related to inhuman exhale. Yeah. What, what, what would the cover is? Yeah, it's lungs. Yeah. Lungs as flowers. What would life be without love? That doesn't mean go and fall in love with any old boho. But uh, frankly, if that suits you, why not? Mm. But you know, the the whereas there are people who never take the risk and they just you know, they think that they're I think it's the paradox of love. It is so scary and it will break down every defense and wall that you've ever known. And you might feel so alone in that space and at the same time it's the most connected that you'll ever be because you'll be seen and heard and known and 
that's also something that came later in life. I think, you know, again, if we look at the difference with the first two with the filter swiping and liking. I think in my earlier relationships, I probably tried to like change myself a bit more for people that I was with or in more short term, like relationships or meeting people, like try to present a certain version of myself. Or there would often be like a bit of a, uh, I don't know what the word is like, it's not even a friction, but people might meet me on a superficial level and think, oh, she's fun and she's outgoing. And then they would be surprised by a seriousness behind it or a depth and wouldn't know how to deal with it. Whereas now, you know, I'm, <laughs> maybe my dad would say I'm to myself or, but, you know, I just, I'm like, be yourself. Because if you end up with this person, they're going to know eventually. So mm. they might as well know now. And if they do want to end up with you, you don't want them to want to end up with you because it's not the real you. So just, you know, if we can all just relax and let ourselves be seen. Do you think that you, you, you covered parts of yourself or you took away pieces of yourself when you were in relationships because you were scared or because you were anxious? A bit of both. I think because especially when, especially in the few, in the first few uh, experiences of like being with someone, Mm. a lot of people and it's usually the girl mm. that ends up sacrificing so much and kind of losing herself mm. out of love you know I'm not saying that you shouldn't love but like and not even that you shouldn't love at that at that age or at, at a young age because it teaches you something right but is it is it from a place of you're scared you, do, you don't want to be alone or is it's anxious that someone discovers the real you Because as you said, and, and maybe there's a bit of not feeling worthy of love. Mm. I think fundamentally, I didn't think I was worthy of love. Why? I just, I was just ingrained. Maybe it's from a past life or a karma. Like deep down, I didn't really, yeah, deep down, that was a thing. I had a lot of love to give, but I think deep down, I didn't really believe that, that I could receive it. And it's funny because, yeah, I would constrain parts of myself or I would be deeply unhappy, but maybe I didn't know any better because that was just how I was. And actually, or I would maybe make sacrifice thinking it was compromise until someone told me something. She said, you know, Emily, love is supposed to give you wings, not clip them. Mm. And that completely changed my perspective because I was able to see situations where I'd been clipping my own wings. Mm. Maybe I was clipping my own wings so as to not, you know, like this very modern dynamic of, oh, don't intimidate someone or, you know, like, or intimidating whatever. Well, maybe I'm just... It's again like this, don't show off. Don't show, uh, yeah, don't show, exactly. Don't show off. Mm. And it's funny because I actually had a conversation with... Um, we are our biggest enemy. We are our biggest enemy. But I was telling you about an interaction I had recently where someone said something to me and it was so, so minor. It was something so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, when you say that, it makes me feel really inadequate. And they couldn't believe it. <laughs> what do you mean inadequate? And I said, yeah, that's what it triggers. That's the, the feeling. That's the feeling. And, and in a way, I think, I don't know, maybe this is an unfair generalization, but people who are outwardly very, very successful or who have, who are also, you know, like viruses or whatever, you know, you're essentially, you're, it's very competitive basically to get into it. So these people are all very bright and very successful, but I think all have a deep fear of being inadequate. And I think sometimes people, at least from my perspective, when I first went into that job, it was also wanting to prove to myself that I was adequate. It was like a constant, you know, the way that I basically felt 
So it was like, don't show off, but then get really good grades and then have all these skills. And so it was kind of always focused on doing rather than feeling. And I think that's generational. I don't think that's just me. Mm. You know, whereas I think my generation who are now having children is so much more conscious around how the child feels. feels and validating their emotions yeah. and naming the feeling. Naming the feeling. Like I was saying, I saw a thing on TikTok and it's so simple, but it like kind of blew my mind. Instead of saying to the kid, you're so clever, you did such a good painting. Before you even look at the painting, you just say, I love you. Because the I love you shouldn't it's be not attached, it's not attached not to doing well. Yeah. That's something that we do in Montessori. There are no rewards or punishments. Mm. Because then it's external. Mm. It's always going to be external. The, the internal motivation and internal will is destroyed mm. when you're constantly praising someone or, yeah. or yeah. punishing them. Yeah. Because it's either fear induced or seeking approval. And Validation. And seeking approval is really a rejection of the self to begin with because mm -hmm. you're going outside. I mean, that was an epiphany that I yeah. had. I mean, really recently, we're talking in like June. So this is a few months ago yeah. where I had this like sudden realization that in seeking outside approval of situations, mm -hmm. and even if, it was, even if it was very subtle, even if it's wanting just people to be like, oh, that sounds great. Or, oh, that's, a, you know, in wanting that, I was rejecting myself. Because if it's a choice that I'm making about my life, I'm the only one that needs to be truly at peace with it. And then when you go to people and you're at peace with the situation and you say, this is my life, this is how I feel, this is what I'm doing, people respect it. But when you go to them with, oh yeah, this is what I'm doing, what do you think? Or like, what did you think of this person? Then that dynamic is already flawed. Yeah, it's tough though. It's a constant unlearning. And relearning. And relearning. Yeah. It's a journey, man. <laughs> <laughs> we're so I feel like we're so deep. I feel like we're I feel like we're like in the kind of like Amazonian jungle with like tribal drums behind us doing some kind of ecstatic cacao dance. <laughs> you ever been to cacao ceremony? I've done a couple, yeah. How is that? All right. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, not like I feel not as like insane as, as you would expect or yeah. like, you know I had a great time because I tend to have a great time most places I go you know? <laughs> <laughs> I like music I like chocolate it was amazing. I like everything oh my god <laughs> the chocolate uh, Reese's bar that I ate yesterday oh yeah insane. I made Hadir an amazing I say amazing <laughs> it was amazing it's bomb <laughs> an amazing dark chocolate peanut butter homemade Reese's pieces yes so when was the last time you did something for the first time? When is the last time I did something for the first time? Well, June comes to mind, but I'm sure there's been something since then. Maybe my birthday. Ah, you just turned 30. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> so exciting. You know, I every time I read, I read like people's human design, mm. it says like, and 30 is the age where... Blah, 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 blah. And I don't get why. Mm, because it's linked yeah, to the so Saturn return in astrology. So the idea is that if you ascribe, obviously, to the belief of um, astrology and human design, and then also past life and reincarnation, the idea is when the soul comes to Earth, we've kind of forgotten why we came, right? Like, mm -hmm. all of this knowledge that we have, we re-enter the human world. And it's gone. And so they say that basically 
from age naught to 27, 28, we're re-experiencing our past life karma. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily the factual scenarios, but the themes, the thematics. And you can tend to pinpoint in someone's charts, like the theme where it will show up. So maybe it would be in the theme of friendships, maybe it would be in the theme of work or mm -hmm. whatever. When you hit 27, 28, Saturn, who is, he's often equated to the father, but really he's like, I would say the planet of growth. He He's the planet that you learn from through challenging experiences, but you will really grow. And it takes him 27 to 28 years, or like 27 to 30 to kind of come back to where he was when you were born. Mm. And so in the two years of 28 to 30, that's when he comes back is what's called the Saturn return and when you tend to go through a huge amount of shifts. So anecdotally, a lot of people in the Saturn return go through breakups, engagements, marriages, babies, move countries, move house, like mm -hmm. all of the big shifts happen. And then 30, when the Saturn return is over, the idea is that you're then entering into your North node. So you're, you're kind of, you're, you're leaving the past karma behind and you're starting to really embody and experience the positive attributes that you came here to learn and to experience. Mm -hmm. When it happens again, when you hit 60, the idea is that you've by then become a master of those positive traits and you kind of embody them for the rest of the collective. So you become like, you know, kind of the, like the, the older wise woman mm. who will hold space. That's why 30 is a big number. So what's 30 for you? 30 for me is big. 30 for me, it's funny because a lot of friends... It's only me, been a couple of weeks. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's psychologically big. Okay. 30 for me, a lot of friends told me that I would quote unquote stop giving a fuck. And in some ways, I already had very little fucks to give. <laughs> <laughs> in other ways, I had many. So it's been interesting. I think for me, 30 is, you know what? Like it's just been such a difference. I, I'm always humbled by life at how quickly things can change. And that's why I always struggle when people ask me how I see my life. Like, this is the dumbest question in interviews to me. Like, where do you see your life in five years? I hate that question. Oh, my God. It's such a dumb question. And I met someone recently who's told me, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, you know, well, you need a plan. And sometimes you have to do things you don't like to do. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. And I just, he was so matrixy. <laughs> I was like, no. Mm. Because... I always say the best things in life, in my life, have been completely unplanned. Yes. Even before coming to Egypt. If you had told me a month before that I'd be here and I'd stay for as long as I did, I would have said, no way. Mm. Like, no way. When I started my last relationship, I would never have thought it would end. When it ended, I never thought I'd meet someone new. Like, and I stopped wanting to know. I've stopped wanting to know. Because... That's a gift. Yeah, I don't want to know anymore. Because when I used to maybe, like try and know or I would have ideas about certain things and then you kind of just end up waiting for it to happen yeah and waiting sucks but I guess people want to know for security just yeah the illusion that we can peace. control but but, no but then one. it doesn't bring you peace the waiting period either so this idea that your your mood or your behavior shouldn't change based on someone else's behavior mm. And of course, that's very hard to do day in, day out. Like if someone speaks at you and is really aggressive. If you don't live with anyone, yeah, it's easy. But... Yeah. But if you're in like constant contact, which most of us are, that's tricky. Mm. But it's really the idea that, that it's reminding yourself that you have the power over you. We don't choose the situations. Like I was, I kind of believe that your karma might bring in situations 
into your life, but you do have the free will on how you choose to respond to them. So you could repeat a pattern or you can make a choice to, to try something different. Mm. Yeah, I've loved this year. I've loved this year because I completely surrendered, honestly. I just, especially with 30, I just, like I was saying on, on the podcast, the last one, my wish was that I would be true to myself mm. always and knowing that myself could change. Amazing. Mm. What's the thing that you did for the first time? I completely just followed. Oh, surrendered. Yeah. That was the first time that you surrendered. Well, in this specific circumstance. Oh. So I've surrendered to many other things, but it, it was like, you know, I, was, <laughs> I literally had no part to play in anything. Mm. And it was You're just floating. Yeah, it was so challenging. And it was so amazing, but it was so challenging. Because you're always used to controlling yeah. I'm the doer. I'm the yeah. doer. And that's something that used to show up in relationships actually. I was so Does used to doing it. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. To sit back and watch. Yeah. <laughs> because because it also relates to value. Because when you have an ingrained notion that you have to do to have value, if I'm not doing or giving, then what value do I have? This is a Western. Uh, this is a Western thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. Um, it's not a bad thing, mm. but to with moderation. Mm. Well, I think it's to be, it's to be aware of it and to, and to laugh at it. Like you know, I, I probably sound like I have my shit together on this episode, but of course I have days when I don't. You know, yeah. like the other day, or the other day, maybe if, whenever in the recent. <laughs> scheme of things. in the recent scheme of things I remember being out and about and just in a terrible mood okay terrible mm. and I couldn't snap out of it and I even went to the bathroom and I tried to like just you know I couldn't do it and I texted one of my best friends I said god I'm in the worst mood and the worst part was is I could feel myself underneath happy and free I could feel myself just like haha you're so silly being so annoyed but I couldn't, I couldn't get to it. Mm. And sometimes you also just have to like allow yourself that moment. Again, knowing it'll, it'll pass. pass. Yeah. Just giving it its time to just be. It's part of the human experience. Good days, bad days, all days. Yeah. You know, your good days, a good day doesn't define you, neither does a bad one. Um, two things, actually, I wanted to ask you. And yeah, I feel like you've assimilated so well into Egyptian culture. <laughs> I swear, like, I feel when you can tell when a foreigner is a foreigner and when a foreigner has become one. And I think you're, because you're half French, half British, already that, like, multicultural background and you've traveled a lot, has already made you a lot more accepting and easy, easy, easy to adapt wherever you're placed, mm. right? So I think, um, yeah, I consider you like, you know, part of us, one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious of what you think of Egyptian culture and, and the challenges and the advantages and the wonders, you know, it's probably like for you, probably like, you know, to be, to be in this culture, it's, you know, quote unquote exotic or there are a lot of practices that you, maybe not now because you've been here for a while, but like at, at first when you mm. when a foreigner comes to Egypt they're kind of like taken mm. well and Egypt has a great energy to begin with yeah 
I mean, there's no denying that. There's and a lot of warmth. There's yeah. a lot of warmth and in the people. Mm. And so what drew me to Egypt initially was community. Mm. You know, it was, a, it was a feeling of people being so closely knit. And I think that's what I struggle with the most is, is it's a complete contradiction here. Mm. I'm also a completely contradictory person, in so in a way, way it, it suits me. But on the one hand, you have, at least my experience of it, you have such close-knit communities. Mm. You know, you have any kind of problem, everyone will be there for you, they'll show up. And your friends that have formed in childhood will last you till your 60s. Yeah. That's rare, like that's not common. Mm. Your school friends are with you for life. Yeah, for life. There's no, no way you're not like, it's not a choice. Yeah, and your family, friends or everything. And, and there's a real um, effort of maintaining the important close relationships. Mm. And at the same time, as what we're speaking about is that people don't let themselves be seen. Mm. And so how close can you really be? Because mm. you have proximity physically, but do you have emotional closeness? You know, it's so nice because doing this episode with you. I mean, first of all, I feel extremely comfortable talking to you, but it's also so nice to be heard. And it's a bit ironic because you might think because I have the books and in a way I have the podcast that you are heard, but you know, people often listen just to respond mm. or they, they, they listen to give an opinion. So you were saying earlier that maybe you would talk to someone about a problem that you have, but oftentimes that might, make it worse because the person might just have, they might indulge the reaction, you know? Mm. Oh yeah, that's terrible, that person's terrible. Whereas there's a poem in Waves actually called Listen. Mm. And the premise is essentially, you know, my voice just needs to be heard. I don't need your analysis. I don't need your opinion. I just need to be heard. And it is very affirming for me in this podcast to have been heard by you, so thank you. It's always amazing to listen to you and what you have to say. Thanks! And, <laughs> and I think, you know, listening to you and your experiences is healing in so many ways and to so many people, and I really hope you know that, and to, have, to whoever is listening out there. You know, I did just on that, about the change thing, it's, have you, you know the app, The Pattern? No. Oh, it's, I'm so hooked. It's an astrological app. I mean, it's nothing compared. You're always getting me hooked on apps. I know. <laughs> but the pattern, like, it, it basically, again, if you buy into the whole astro chart thing, it, I remember reading it and it was like, you know, you, you will go through times of deep turbulence and pain in your life and you won't understand why. But the purpose is to connect you deeper mm-hmm. and for you to then become almost like a guide to other people. Mm-hmm. So what you said really resonates because, anyway, that's what I try to do. So thank you. You know, speaking of turbulent times, and personally, I think anxiety now, or like just the constant state of being anxious, mm. is so common. Mm. I don't think you're going to sit with a person and they won't be able, you won't feel their anxiety or hatta socially ever since COVID and even from before. And even like you were saying, it's so rare to sit and have a real conversation with people. Mm. And I don't think it's because people, there's no essence. And I used to say, I feel like there's no essence, but I think it's anxiety. I think we are always so scared to show our true selves because we're we're scared of judgment. We're scared of um, not being accepted. 
And I think just being in that state is already you're rejecting yourself. Mm. So then others are automatically going to reject you. So how have you, how, how does your anxiety manifest and how, and if you've overcome it? <laughs> so my anxiety, so I've been self-describing as an anxiety addict recently, mm. and it's quite a new revelation. Mm. I was probably quite anxious as a child, but also very overperforming. Mm. And I didn't really realize what it was until I just realized that that was kind of my base rhythm. Anxiety for me pops up more as intrusive thoughts. Some people it's like, oh, you know, I think I've left the oven on, which might almost be related more to OCD. I don't have that kind of anxiety, but I will have anxiety over, I suppose what you were saying about like conversations, I mean, much less now, but when I was younger, it might have been worrying that I'd said too much or that I'd be judged or that I would always worry that people You'd would- relive the situation. Yeah. Or yeah. well, I'd worry that people would remember the wrong thing about me. Mm. Like that always bothered me actually in interactions. I know that sounds really silly, but I always felt like I was so much more than I could express. And then maybe you'd see someone, they would remember this one thing you've told them. But the one thing that they remember is like the least important. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, no, you know, like now you're going to think I'm this or that or, or yeah. whatever. And you could get into a deeper questioning. Why does it even matter what I think that they think? But anyway, that's how it would kind of manifest. Or um, just, I suppose, when I had something really good, whatever that was, just, mm -hmm. just a constant state of anxiety about it disappearing. And a therapist once told me, you know, when there's been famine, you feast. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get a bit deep about it again, like if you bring in the kind of the, the childhood, you know, when there's a, a, a sick child that's brought into the mix, everything, it, it is like a bit like a bomb into the family dynamic. So I was 13 and effectively from that age on, I was self-parenting. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was done. And that's not to say that my mom didn't want to be there. It was just, it wasn't possible. There just wasn't emotional capacity. There wasn't mental capacity. There wasn't time. There wasn't the energy. And so then when you, I mean, it, it's twofold. First of all, I struggled to receive. I found it really hard. Like, you know, we were saying earlier about giving. Mm -hmm. The flip side of me always giving or doing was that I really struggled to receive. And also that I would then just, when I was receiving, it was so amazing and overwhelming, but it would almost, it, it kind of always produced this double effect, which was on the one hand, you feel so much better and you realize how much better you feel compared to your younger self and how much happier you are now. But then that would also come with grief because I would realize how unhappy I'd been mm. without even knowing. And so it was a constant, like the happier I would get, it was a constant re-grieving process for what I had been or maybe what I hadn't experienced and had wanted to experience. Mm. So I have a lot of lucid dreams, like a lot, like since I was a kid. And I had one recently that, that really stayed with me. Mm. In it, I was walking through my mind, through my brain, and I could see my brain as like this kind of like white, they almost looked like white stars, but they were like 3D, mm. but they were big and they were like on the ground. And at the end of each stem was a multicolored ball. Mm. And I'm looking through through all of these like parts of my brain and I realize I'm looking for a problem and I break a bit off. And then I realize that, that there's nothing wrong with me. And in that moment, it was like an instinctive knowing of like, oh my God, I've been paying a therapist all these years to find something wrong with me. 
And then there's nothing wrong with me. And I can't tell you, it was like, it was such an epiphany. That was the first thing. Then there was this like drunk character in my dream. And I'd been reading the 40 rules of love, which funnily enough, we spoke about on our episode together. In it, there's a guy called Suleiman the drunk. And so Suleiman the drunk <laughs> appears in my dream and he's just laughing drunk. And he's like, <laughs> and- Is he skinny? I've always imagined Suleiman to be so skinny. Oh, I, he was tall. so chubby in my, in my, oh, really? in my dream. <laughs> He was like, Jimmy, he was, you know what? He reminded me a bit of, have you seen Mary Poppins? Yes. You know, the laughing uncle? Yes. He's been like the laughing uncle up in the air, just um, like laughing around. And I was judgmental of him in that space, you know? Yeah. I was like, oh, look at you, Suleiman. That's why I don't drink. He laughs back at me and says, oh, you don't drink, but you have other addictions. And I'm like, what do you mean? I suddenly see myself as this decrepit old woman, all in black, like completely sucked of life, shriveled skin, dry bones, hunched over, almost like rocking back and forth. And I realized that was my anxiety addiction. And I realized that I was feeding all of these negative thoughts to myself. And every time that I thought I was kind of um, addressing an anxious thought, I was just feeding, feeding this woman. And, it was so clear to me in that moment that I had to stop. That's scary. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to, I will die if I, like, I will kill my soul. Isn't it ironic how we always think that a lot of the barriers that we put up to protect ourselves mm. and to defend ourselves could actually put us in more jeopardy, like it just backfires. Mm. And that's why I now have... Well, and it's funny because then it came with another thing. And then I realized how when I often get into a very anxious state of mind, and it is obviously also, I'll be honest, linked to my cycle. Like if I'm PMSing, mm -hmm. which is also a relatively new thing because I like my cycles only become quite right. Like that's another long story mm -hmm. for a different day and contraception and hormones and what it does for a woman's body. But since being off contraception and back on a regular cycle, I definitely feel the PMS much more. And I will get kind of obsessive thoughts or like very like, negative thoughts or like panicky thoughts and it will always go to something I can't control mm. because the mind is so clever like my 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 reaction to myself is good enough that if it's something I can act upon I will mm. but so then my mind is like well what about all of these things that you can't change let's freak out about those and then when I'm freaking out I'll tend to write to two or three very good friends of mine it's kind of like a spiral you know and in the moment I think I'm helping myself like oh my god blah, 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 blah. And my poor friends, you know, like they're fucking angels because because <laughs> they just like talk me down. I don't think they even really say anything nowadays. Like they, they all tend to give me a one or two day like lapse that they respond because they, I think they all know, like we've never acknowledged it, but I think they all now know <laughs> that when that kind of message comes through every month, you know, yeah. that's what it is. And by the time my period comes through, they say, I'm like, oh yeah, I feel better. <laughs> or at least I have more perspective. It doesn't mean the thing isn't an it issue. It just clouds your yeah, yeah, I just have perspective. But the point is I felt so much shame for myself mm. and that was also so toxic like why am I shaming myself you know what yes I had these thoughts and and they were uncomfortable and maybe I'm they were a bit ridiculous and maybe they were immature but why am I going to make myself feel even like shame is poisonous mm. anyway and I then found myself in a situation where for no reason I started crying and on the one hand as funnily enough we spoke about on the episode that we did together you might feel an emotion that needs to be released and you won't always know where it comes from and it just has to pass through. The other day I literally cried out of the blue for like 10 minutes and then I felt amazing. Mm. 
can't tell you why I cried, what it was about, just know that it had to come out. But in this situation, I know that I, I, I might be experiencing an emotion or something, and I, for me at least, I'll feel it more in my body. And I'll tend to, to know if I sit with myself, if it's in the body. If it's in the mind, and it's like my mind going crazy and nothing can solve it, and I just want to talk about it. Like I read this thing that said, if you have to tell more than three people about the same problem, you don't want a solution, you just want to like... Uh, indulge. Indulge or like, yeah, generate um, more of the problem. So that was a that was anxiety. Yeah, so that was a big first step. Was like the anxiety wants everyone to know about this mm. thing because actually you don't really like my 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 shriveled anxious lady self from my dream just wants this like. Oh my addiction. god! I'm gonna, I'm gonna look out for that. Yeah, and so so it's in the mind, right? So it's the mind like speaking, speaking, always looking for more, always looking, and then you know you rationalize one thing and it comes out with another thing like da 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 da. So I start crying and I'm in public. Okay, my <laughs> <laughs> like, Christ. My therapist, one of the great things she taught me, she was like, tears may be an inconvenience, but they're never wrong. And I love that. And I think everybody should embrace that. If you need to cry, just cry. It's human. It's fine. And I take myself to a bathroom. And I just say to myself, is this my anxiety addiction? That's why it just came as a question. And immediately, it was like a knowing. The answer was like, yes, this is your anxiety addiction. And like that, the tears stopped. They just stopped. It lost its power. Yeah, because I realized in that moment, it wasn't real. And I think for me, the challenging part is how do I know that it's a real anxiety versus something that the mind is fabricating? Although you might say all anxieties the mind is fabricating, but where I think I struggle is that sometimes we do feel things, we know something is off. And so we want to pay attention for those clues and I suppose not miss them. But at the same time, I've come to realize for me, if you have a base level of anxiety, which I think I definitely had, and was probably propagated by my job and my career because it's such a like an anxious environment, let's yeah. face it, you know, going to court is never fun. Mm. You, when you're used to a baseline of anxiety, I do think you become, when I say addicted to it, it's not just, oh, you want it, but it's, it's you're used to it. So also, oh, I do, know. yeah. So I do sometimes wonder whether my mind, or my brain is trying to recreate this like background noise of anxiety because it's just what it's used to. Mm you know, because it's so used to being in the state. It's like people who are absolute workaholics and you tell them to go into nature and then they're, they're in nature and they're like, because they're, they're used to being in that frequency. So it's, it's, uh, it's like they get, they start to get headaches and stuff because mm. for us it's all they know. Mm. So yeah, so that's how I, I wouldn't say that I've overcome my anxiety because it's still, but um, you know, it's truth, you know, it's face. Yeah, and I find that, that, that talking about it and acknowledging it is helpful and having a few friends who are able to just listen without giving an opinion, without needing to intellectualize it. And I have a, a, a very dear friend, uh, my lawyer friend actually, who I will write to and I'll just say, can you indulge me? Mm. I, just, I just, you know what, I need to indulge my anxiety for 10 minutes. I just you know, they were... They were um... In, in our philosophy class in, in Bali, when we were doing uh, yogic philosophy, I remember a teacher was saying, when you feel like, you know, the world is coming down and your thoughts are all over the place, just start, just ask yourself, where's my attention at? Mm. Because I think the problem with anxiety is it's, the, it's very unknown. Like, I, don't, I think... 
it shows up very differently for different people. People don't know that it's anxiety. They think it's just them. Well, and we've forgotten the primary needs. I mean, on a, on a like, this will sound very simple, but no jokes. The lack of sleep, proper sleep, quality sleep, the lack of proper food. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I mean, I think I suffer more than most people from bad mood if I'm hungry. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. my close friends will attest. Me too. Yeah, they carry Angry. snacks when they come to meet me because they're like, are you hungry just in case? But you know, that will make it so much worse. Yeah. If I haven't been exercising, if I mm. haven't spent time in nature, if I spent the whole day in my flat yeah. by myself without, you know, we're humans, it's what we need. Sunlight, air, food, water, companionship. Yes. You know, do all of those things, then see how you feel. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, I think, I think I'm gonna, my goal for this week is to really live by um, embracing change mm. and not intellectualizing everything mm. because not everything has an intellectual not everything reason. Everything has an intellectual reason. I started reading your book yesterday, Waves, and I can't mm. wait to delve deeper. As we close out, I'd quite like to read you the epilogue. Would you be out for that? Yes, please. I love this book because I feel like it was, so I was, to bring it full circle back to the beginning, books one and two, Inhale and Exhale, were all based off of real experiences that happened. Mm-hmm. And I suppose writing was a catharsis. Whereas when the third book, it literally came through me, I was writing all this stuff and thinking, where's it coming from? You know, I haven't I haven't experienced this yet. And I almost feel like I kind of write, wrote it in advance. In a way, it healed me as well mm-hmm. when I needed it. And I think the epilogue is also a letter that I wrote for myself. I'll read it to you now. Epilogue, April, 2021. I can't quite believe it has been a year since lockdown started and a year since I released Inhale and Exhale. A year of change, of beginnings and endings, a year of waves, waves of emotion, of blessings, of adventures. The biggest lesson I've learned this year is to surrender. When we're stood in the sea and a wave rises up, we can let it crash over us. We can try to stand firm, but the truth is it will sweep us off our feet. Or we can choose to dive into it, to embrace it. And as we dive in, the water simply flows over us and we come up for air on the other side, cleansed and exhilarated, sea salt sticking to our skin and glistening in our hair. We feel alive. (laughs) God. God calling. (laughs) We love you, God. (laughs) I'll keep going. Life is too short to numb it. Life is too short to act out of fear. Ask yourself, are you acting out of fear or out of love? Choose love always. Tell the person you love that you love them. If your heart breaks, know that it will heal. It is better to have lived and loved bravely than to regret not trying. Know that truly there is nothing to fear. This is all just part of your journey. We always ask the universe to send us change and blessings, to meet someone incredible. So when it happens, remember to dive in. Don't resist it or let it pass you by. Dive into the waves as they come, even if those waves are waves of intensity or of emotion. Remember that all waves pass. As human beings, we ourselves are like the sea, ever-changing. It's part of our beauty. It's part of the beauty of life. My wish for you is that you live fully and freely without regrets, that you treat yourself with kindness and compassion, that you will choose love over fear, 
May we all take a deep inhale, a deep exhale, and remember to embrace the waves. Thank you for joining me through Elements of the Soul. Emily, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. I I, so I wish I could put into words how I feel right now. <laughs> I'm sending love out to everyone. Everyone who's struggling to find their voice, struggling to, you know, you're not alone. And thank you. <laughs> thank you so, so much. This has been a true blessing. Thank you for joining The Wizard in the World. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, review, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much for all your support. We can't wait until next time. Until then, don't forget to stay magic.